Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. I am so looking forward to attending the NPR ball tonight. It will be ever so wonderful. Maybe I'll dance with Steve Inskeep and say something terribly droll to him, and I'll go, <laughs> Aren't you forgetting something, Wolferella? What is it, stepmother? You have quite a bit of continuity to record. Contin- what is continuity? It's where you say, coming up later on a Prairie Home Companion, Garrison forces the members of Wilco to sing a song about Jello Mold with him. The time is at 11.30. And up next in the media, Bob Garfield loses his temper and starts yelling that everything he ever cared about is turning to crap. It's 2 p.m. and on and on like that. Oh, no. How many of them do I have to do? A thousand million. Now I'm off to the ball. Maybe I'll hook up with that fellow Ted, who has all the talks. No, there is no person named Ted that stands for... What's the use? I'm never going to go to this ball. Maybe you will. If there is goodness in your heart, wonderful, magical things can happen. You must be my fairy godmother. No, I'm from the Labor Department. You might have a pretty good case here, but you have to fill out this 1166 form. Then we schedule an administrative hearing, which is non-binding, but if we get a Class D advisory judgment, then we file... No, by then the ball will be over. I need help right now. Why didn't you say so? Hey, you. Come here. It's all the birds from Bird Note. They'll record all your little announcements while you're gone. Okay, let's hear you do the Prairie Home Companion one. I guess that's close enough. I'm out of here. Hey, Mr. Inskeep, don't give all your dances away. I'm coming. I forgot something. Can you guys record something about how this is a show about Cinderella and the host is Colin McEnroe? Thanks. I guess that was it. All right, so we are going to be talking about Cinderella today, about the persistence of this myth. Uh, and so uh, joining us to do that, as she has many times before, as, uh, is Linda Holmes, who writes and edits NPR's uh, entertainment and pop culture blog, Monkey C. She's the host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Uh, joining me in studio uh, is uh, Maya Cantu, uh, dramaturg and author of American Cinderella on the Broadway musical stage, imagining the working girl from Irene to Gypsy. She'll be joining the drama faculty of Bennington College in the fall, uh, but she's with us today. Linda's in the uh, NPR studios in Washington, D.C. Uh, Linda Holmes, I'll start with you. This this story, some version of this story, it's kind of all over culture. It goes back, uh, back, back to uh, to China, uh, and, and it just never seems to go away. What, what's the what's the theme in it that makes it such a brainworm? Well, the Cinderella story, um, we have to differentiate a little bit between what we talk about as a Cinderella story, which is essentially anything good that happens to someone nice, (laughs) and the actual Cinderella myth, which usually involves um, traditionally a girl who is of kind of low social station, usually forced to do menial labor, um, meets a man of higher station who mistakes her for someone who is, you know, of a higher class than she is. And eventually she, you know, she has to get him to kind of recognize her. And the shoe is very, the glass slipper, which is, can be any kind of shoe, is very persistent. So I think what has made this myth so um, 
so interesting to people is the number of ways in which you can take this story, which is kind of about romance and kind of about rescue and kind of about, um, you know, how much you do have the ability or don't have the ability to have any mobility in society. Um, It's kind of about all those things. There's a whole lot going on in this story, actually. Yeah, I think there is a whole lot going on in the story. And it is kind of all over the place. It's uh, probably popularized for the most uh, part by a man named Charles Perrault, uh, who wrote about it in 1697. Uh, but it existed like for centuries before that in different forms. Um, some, and we'll kind of come to this. Some would say that the Grimm's brother version is maybe a little bit uh, closer to the the spirit we, we might want of this. But so Maya, you, you know, you heard Linda Holmes talk about the the class mobility and fluidity notion of this. That the station you're born into isn't necessarily the station you have to stay. In. One of the things that you've kind of looked at is the degree and the frequency with which, say, Broadway producers or, or anybody like that comes back to this story. I assume it's more attractive as a fantasy at, at times when, in fact, the prospects for advancement are, are a little bit more locked up. Yes, I think that's uh, very much true with this myth. I think, um, as Linda was saying, um, Cinderella is always with us. She is ever-present. There are so, so many countless variations of this fable. Um, I think we are seeing a a lot of her right now in particular as kind of uh, fierce debates rage on about income inequality and maybe uh, uh, the decline of the middle class and all these, uh, you know, things that are so present in the news right now. Um, I think she's... uh, uh, certainly very present. Also, um, as we you know have uh, all kinds of debates about gender and and feminism and and uh, rapidly changing roles for women in the workforce and public life. Um, I think the Cinderella myth, which is such a sort of archetypal notion of femininity, also speaks to that shift as well. When you say we're seeing more of an interest, uh, I know at the beginning of your book uh, you talk about stage revivals uh, planned for Gigi Ever After, Pretty Woman, uh, Pretty mm-hmm. Woman. These are all kind of Cinderella stories, right? Yeah, I, I think uh, you know there's not any sign that they're going to you know stop coming at us anytime soon. Um, uh, when I wrote my book, you know, we had uh, a new version of Gigi, a kind of more uh, feminist uh, revamping of of Gigi. We had uh, Ever After it at the Paper Mill Playhouse. We had um, uh, a new version of Rodgers and Hammerstein's uh, Cinderella which, you know, is maybe one of the most uh, famous uh, musical versions of the tale. Um, yeah, and there's, uh, from what I understand, there is a, a musical of Pretty Woman coming at us uh, uh, that uh, Gary Marshall will be uh, producing. And there's, um, I think, a Devil Wears Prada musical in the making. Um, and that's kind of an interesting take on Cinderella that mixes it kind of with almost a Frankenstein myth. Um, and she becomes sort of a Cinderella fashion monster. Um, uh, so that that that's in the making as well. Um, but I think there's... Uh, quite a few of these uh, musicals that, um, you know, are either Cinderella or kind of take uh, the the figure of Cinderella and put her in a more modern uh, uh, American context. Yeah. So, I mean, and maybe, uh, Linda, it makes sense to look for sort of a number five between zero and ten uh, on the Cinderella continuum. So, as you said, you know, we sometimes use Cinderella as uh, anything good happening to anybody who's nice. You know, on the other end, we have kind of the, the paradigmatic story, whether it's spelled out by Grimm or, or Perot. But in the middle, we do have these stories, and they tend to be about women who are, in some way or another, in sort of these kind of scullery roles, although these days maybe they're an office assistant, or I guess maybe they're a high-class <laughs> hooker. I, I, you know, that, that somehow or other, Linda, it seems as though that there, there's that story that's kind of in the middle. It might not have a glass slipper exactly. It might not have some of the other uh, magical things about it. But it's a story we keep telling, uh, maybe once again, because of that, of that notion that, that you can— get something this way. 
Right. I think for a lot of people, um, any story, you know, has some appeal if you start with a person who is feeling at the time that you encounter her, perhaps the way everybody feels at some moment in their own life, which is I'm working very hard. I'm at the mercy of a lot of forces in my life that I don't control. And typically what happens in one of these stories is some some uh, intervention comes into your life. Usually it is a person. Traditionally in these stories, it is um, a man. Although if you're going to talk about something like The Devil Wears Prada, as Maya said, there's a little bit of a different – you can think about that as kind of the intervention of, of a job. Um, so you have the an intervention that allows that person to escape what they consider to be kind of power, a, a sense of powerlessness. Um, so very often these stories are theoretically about escaping – uh, the the circumstances that you feel are holding you back. And everybody, I think, can relate to that idea of, you know, one day, whatever the thing is that I feel powerless against, I will be able to break out of, whether it's family or any other kind of personal problem, and I will achieve this other version of myself. And I think what unites a lot of these stories is that fantasy of what that other version of yourself will look like and be like. That's why a lot of these stories involve makeovers and, um, you know, coming down the stairs after you've taken off your glasses and let your hair down and um, that there will be some other you that is waiting out there that you can achieve with just a little bit of help. And I think, you know, I know that uh, you and Betsy may have discussed sort of the male version of this in some of the superhero stories, although I feel as though... You know, the male ego being what it is, most of those stories are you were always this. It was just concealed. You were, I mean, Superman, I mean, excuse me, Clark Kent is the myth. Superman is the reality. You know, you were always, you were always this incredibly great person. You just wasn't particularly, you know, the right, the right time to share that with the world. You see it in Harry Potter, too. Maybe he's a little bit closer to a Cinderella figure when he's living under the stairs. But that doesn't last very long. You know, right, right. he's almost instantly rich and really incredibly powerful. Um, right. Right. And so by the time. You, yeah. yeah go I'm ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead, Linda. When you get into those, you also are running up against these kind of chosen one monomyth kinds of stories mm-hmm. where somebody um, the whole kind of cycle of, you know, resisting the call and all that stuff um, that comes out of these hero, the basic hero's journey. Right. So there's a collision between what a Cinderella story looks like and what a hero's journey looks like. And there are some similar kind of self-actualization um you know, uh, narratives that run through both of those things, weirdly enough, although, as you say, they look very different if you're a superhero, which is, in most cases, a man, and if you're a Cinderella story, which is, in most cases, a woman. So, you know, Maya, you could argue, one could argue, that if you're going to tell a Cinderella story, you're going to tell it kind of one of two different ways. And, in fact, you can use Grimm and Perot uh, as as paradigms for this, too, in the sense that, you know, with Perot, it's very magical. And, and Cinderella's kind of passive, too. She barely even knows that she wants to go to the ball. Her fairy godmother practically has to tell her that. And then her fairy godmother does kind of everything, right? She turns the pumpkin into a coach. That's not in Grimm. That wasn't yeah. necessarily around. And the mice get turned into horses, and the rat gets turned into a footman. And, and so... All this stuff kind of happens. And Bruno Bettelheim was very critical uh, of the way that Perot coached this, uh, uh, created that story or couched that story in the sense that he said, you know, it's almost ridiculous. It's almost ironic, you know, what's happening there. Whereas in Grimm, she kind of earns it, right? She mm-hmm. she figures stuff out. She, she gets a piece of 
wood from her father and it turns into a tree that's really her dead mother. I mean, she does <laughs> she does all this stuff that she really kind of sticks to who she is. And one of the things I think that you see as you're looking at the way this thing gets staged is each of those things can be invoked at different times. But that notion, that second notion, the one that Perot didn't really go with, with the incredibly plucky, gritty young woman who sticks to her guns and, and preserves the very best things that are inside her and, and then figures out what else, whatever else she needs to do. That does show up, maybe even starting back in 1920 with this, uh, this musical Irene. Yes. Uh, Perot is the uh, more uh, common source for Broadway mm. um, adaptations of the Cinderella legend. Although, as you mentioned, the Into the Woods is grim. Um, no, we'll come to that. <laughs> in more ways than one. Yeah. Um, yes. And I think there is, uh, you know, there was a, a genre of, of, of Cinderella musicals in the 20s. This was kind of, I mean, you could say, uh, you know, many musicals are Cinderella stories, but there was a specific 1920s genre called uh, the Cinderella musical. Uh, you know, examples include Irene, Sally. They were usually named after the plucky uh, young working woman of the title um, who, you know, tended to work as a shop girl or a waitress or a chorus girl who, um, uh, you know, in some ways is going after her own professional goals. But maybe there is a Prince Charming in the mix. Um, and there is usually a source of magical intervention in these fables. You know, uh, somebody, usually a male fairy godmother figure um, I, in, in these shows comes along at just the right time to help her get to the ball and uh, meet the prince and overcome his snobbish family, often uh, to marry him. Um, and, you know, they live happily ever after. So um, there's uh, a very uh, common uh, version of that in the 20s. Um, and, you know, that goes all the way up to uh, the 50s when, you know, we see this uh, myth um, remade in My Fair Lady and Gigi and some of these tales. Um, but I, I do think, uh, yeah, there is uh, more of maybe a passive presence in, in the Perot than in the Grimm. Um, which I think Disney really took the to the extreme in 1950. Um, she is repeatedly rescued in in the in the 1950 film uh, first by you know the mice her you know gang of mice who you know uh, sew her gown together uh, then by you know uh, the fairy godmother who happens uh, you know upon Cinderella at the kind of height of her distress and she's a kind of sobbing mess and the fairy godmother comes along um, and uh, gives her her. Uh, beautiful gown and and carriage and all pumpkins and all um, and then finally her rescue by the prince. So I think this version we have in, in pop culture of uh, Cinderella as this uh, weepy passive helpless doormat um, owes you know maybe more to Walt Disney than to Perot. Um, let's hear a little bit of what it sounded like uh, in in 1919. I guess probably this is this musical uh, Irene. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about it after we hear it. But we'll just hear a few seconds uh, of I think uh, Edith Day uh, singing in this role of Irene. Well, you can just draw a straight line from that to Hamilton, but um, <laughs> but but this was an incredibly popular musical, right? Yes, Irene. Um, it was revived in the seventies for Debbie Reynolds, uh, and by then it was seen as sort of a shop-worn, tired, nostalgic, fun, but you know, kind of uh, tired show. But in nineteen nineteen, this show was a phenomenon. Um, it was the show that launched this 20s Cinderella musical genre, and there were productions of it in uh, 
in um, Buenos Aires and in, in, in um, really all around the world. You know, uh, it was kind of almost a franchise. There were so many productions of it. Um, and it really uh, set off this. Uh, there were earlier examples, uh, you know, in 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 uh, England of the, uh, a show called The Gaiety Shows, which was famous for, you know, these chorus girls who went off and married millionaires. Uh, but this show was about um, a hardworking young Irish-American shop girl named Irene O'Dare. Um, who dreams of a better life for herself. It was a pretty gritty and realistic depiction, actually, of, of tenement life for um, for uh, immigrants. Um, so although, you know, the show does end up with uh, Irene, uh, you know, seeking out and, and, and ultimately marrying her Prince Charming, who's a uh, Fifth Avenue society heir, um, she's a very... Uh, uh, assertive and well-spoken uh, heroine who goes after what she wants, which in this case is to uh, lift herself and her family out of this tenement life she's living in. And uh, this show really spoke to uh, kind of an immigrant fantasy. You mentioned Hamilton, mm. um, and I think, you know, you can... You Not know. seriously. No. <laughs> um, there's there's Alger in this, too. There's the Horatio Alger, mm. you know, rags to witch's tale, which is very much part of these narratives as well. Um, but they, you know, they spoke to uh, immigrant dreams at this time. You know, uh, uh, the musical is something that owes so much to, um, you know, to immigrant writers, to Jewish writers. Um, uh, although in this case, the heroine's not Jewish. She's Irish-American. And the Irish were seen as kind of um, uh, an ethnic standard bearer for, you know, uh, the European immigrants of the time. Um, so it really started this uh, huge genre of 20s uh, Cinderella musicals uh, with all kinds of working girl heroines. Uh, she works in a shop. She's a shop girl. Um, but there were so many of these that by 1920. 1923 critics were complaining, stop it. There are too many of these Cinderella's. Um, but um, we continue to see them, and we, and we still do. Um, but this was, uh, yeah, a very a very uh, big show. I think it was the highest-earning show up to that time, and it ran um, a lot of performances. Um, and, uh, you know, as much as you can say that, you know, the ultimate goal for Irene is to, uh, you know, get married, um, I think she's... she's uh, uh, written with a fair amount of specificity and uh, and uh, uh, assertiveness. Um, so, Linda, you know, as we're kind of dancing around this problem here, which is that the the Disney uh, version of Cinderella, in particular, is it's kind of no, it's it's really anti-feminist. I mean, it is kind of you know, you're a wonderful person, you're a nice person, people need to see that. But other than that, you just sort of stand there and be nice, and then birds take care of you, and fairy godmothers take care of you, and all kinds of people take care of you, and they rescue you, and it's kind of not really uh, the kind of message that you want to send to to young women. Uh, and so it seems as though there's this wrestling match that goes on with it all the time. And and the the, the movie and I guess soon to be – well, actually, I know the people who are working on the stage version of Ever After. So soon to be stage version of Ever After. Um, uh, Linda, this is an example of trying to tell the Cinderella story but in a less passive way. To remind people what this is about. Ever After uh, is a film where Drew Barrymore played the Cinderella character who in this movie is named Danielle and Cinderella. <clears throat> Cinderella is a nickname that she's kind of taunted with. And she's significantly more, um, I guess you would say in traditional terms, spunky or feisty <laughs> um, in this version than the Cinderella's of certainly the Disney or even the Rodgers and Hammerstein, some of the other ones that are more familiar. Um, 
And she, uh, there is more, a little bit more of a relationship with the prince. In some of these versions, you have someone who essentially is supposed to be her true love, who she's barely spoken to. There's a little more uh, effort made in that movie to introduce the idea that he likes her because he's talked to her and he thinks she's smart. And they are developing a little bit of a rapport. He still doesn't really know who she is. He's, again, mistaken as to who she is. So there's a little more effort put into making the relationship feel more real. Um, There's a replacement of the fairy godmother figure with Leonardo da Vinci, which I I think is a particularly charming and very pointed replacement of a magical figure with a figure of of science. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, and the relationships with... Um, the mother and the stepsisters. The mother is played by Angelica Houston, and she's still very wicked. Um, but one of the stepsisters is a kind person, so that you don't have a situation where everyone in her life, all the women in her life, are treacherous and terrible, except for the magical fairy godmother, which is how a lot of Cinderella stories read. Um, uh, you know, we need to talk a little bit also about um, the whether the how transferable this story is from its kind of basically uh, white context. I mean, Cinderella's usually pretty right. white. Uh, they did it again recently with a very lovely a woman who played Rose in, in Downton Abbey. Uh, but uh, everybody looked kind of like the way that they, they do in Cinderella. But it's, it's not always that way. And, and Maya, there are some uh, pretty interesting examples, uh, including, uh, I, now I was not aware of this one, uh, Truman Capote's House of Flowers with Diane Carroll as a black Cinderella. Yeah, there's a number of uh, black Cinderella musicals in the period that I'm looking at. Uh, House of Flowers starred uh, Diane Carroll um, as a uh, prostitute, although in the show it's kind of, you know, more ambiguous. Is she or not? Uh, is she or is she not a prostitute? There's, um, you know, a whole subgenre of Cinderella prostitute motifs um, uh, that I look at. Um, so that's uh, one example. Um, I uh, watched quite a bit of uh, Josephine Baker movie musicals from uh, the early 30s where she played uh, a Cinderella figure, uh, Zuzu, Princess Tam Tam. But um, uh, her characters uh, do live out these sort of Cinderella narratives and, and uh, you know, become like she becomes a star in, in the French music hall in Zuzu. But, you know, there's always some kind of compromise. The prince uh, who she becomes involved with or the prince counterpart um, is always white. She always loses him. So there's always some sort of compromise, um, even though her uh, characters uh, do attain some version of, you know, the Cinderella fantasy. And Baker, you know, uh, had really lived that out in her in her real life. But um, there is a persistent uh, kind of uh, uh, coding of the Cinderella uh, character um, in the first half of the 20th century as, as white. And that's really one of the most... Um, uh, problematic things about it. Um, I think we're seeing that open up more. Uh, the uh, recent Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella uh, revival, uh, Kiki Palmer, uh, who was so wonderful in uh, uh, Grease Live, uh, came in and, and did the role. Um, another, this is uh, coming from the film world. And, and came, um, we should say came in and did that role kind of on a colorblind basis, too. It yes, wasn't like, yes. we're not going to do a black Cinderella no, no, cast no. here. It was just, here's Cinderella. Mm-hmm. This is what color she happens to be right this moment. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there was the uh, the Disney version with Brandy. Um, and and Whitney Houston in the 90s. And again, it wasn't making a point of her blackness. It was just uh, opening the representation up a little more than had been 
And to that point, Linda, you know, so that's all that can be a problem, too. Like either you're going to do it on a colorblind basis or I mean, if you're going to call attention to race, then you've got a whole other problem. Uh, and and I give you, for example, the 2002 movie Made in America. This is with Jennifer Lopez. It's basically yet another Cinderella story. But one oh, of the Made in Manhattan, Made in Manhattan. I'm sorry. Made in made Manhattan. Manhattan. Sorry about yeah. that. Uh, made in Manhattan. So one of the criticisms of Made in Manhattan, though, is that it suggests I mean, we're always dealing with this kind of gold digger question of upward mobility. Right. And and one of the criticisms that was made pretty on a more kind of almost scholarly basis of made in Manhattan was that that now the argument is that the way to rise in America is to marry into Anglo society, which a number of people found fundamentally offensive. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, a lot of problems with um, representation and race and entertainment arise directly from the failure to reckon with it on an industry wide level so that you have such scarcity of representation that every individual um, piece of representation that you do get becomes incredibly loaded and is and is heavily coded with. Um, this is what we think Jennifer Lopez as an actress ought to play a maid attempting to marry a white actor. Um, where if you had better representation, if you had more people in more things, some of these, you know, the idea of having Jennifer Lopez play your Cinderella character and Ray Fiennes play your um, your prince character, it's not that it's not still, it's not that you don't still have to be conscious of that, but it becomes less loaded if there's not such scarcity. And I think that's one example of where until you deal with things on an industry-wide level and you start giving more of all kinds of roles to people, then anytime Jennifer Lopez is playing a maid, it's going to ping things for people that are based in part on the scarcity of the the number of times that you see a woman of color as the Cinderella character in a story like that. Somehow, I don't think we're ever going to see Jennifer Lopez play a maid again. I, I, the, the plausibility of that is actually uh, kind of gone at this point. I do have to just quickly mention, because I just there's one completely hilarious detail about this. I, I've never actually seen this movie, but there was actually sort of a series of movies uh, that I think the Disney Channel did or, or some aspect of Disney did called This Cinderella Story, That Cinderella Story. So Selena Gomez was Cinderella or the Cinderella type in uh, Another Cinderella Story, which was made in 2008. The thing that I love, the thing that locates it so perfectly in 2008, do you know what the uh, the glass slipper substitute was in that one? Is this the one where it was the cell phone? Well, it's a Zune. Oh, a Zune. <laughs> it's a okay. Zune. No. I think the uh, I think maybe in the one there was also one where it was uh, Haley Haley Duff, Hillary yeah, Duff, Hillary one Duff, of yeah. the yeah. Hillary Duff. She did the first one. And yeah. it was the cell phone, I yeah. think, in that one. It was like a flip phone. Right. So yeah, I mean, it depends on what the it depends on what year you're doing it in, and that's what I found when I looked at a gazillion versions of this story, is that it's infinitely extensible based on the moment in time when you're writing it and you know it picks up all the characteristics of whatever its moment is for people like who, a zune. yeah for people who <laughs> a zune was this kind of piece of microsoft hardware that i don't i don't even couldn't have lasted more than 10 years i don't think it lasted 10 years i mean it's the kind of thing where if you watch it now you'll have to find the one person in the room who remembers what a zune was but it was sort of like a music playing device as i recall anyway uh, i love that it's there we're going to go out of this segment with um, and, and this is something that maya mentioned before uh, this is the 1990 a Cinderella movie. Uh, this is Whitney Houston as the fairy godmother, Brandy Norwood. Brandy, uh, she is better known, was Cinderella.
Do you like Cinderella? Yes. What do you like about Cinderella? Because she has a blue dress. How would you describe a modern day Cinderella? Somebody who is a good person at heart and does a lot of things for other people and probably doesn't get the recognition they deserve. She's like a strong woman that wants something and goes out and she gets it on her own accord. Probably Cinderella being the prince because today she would fight right out of there and do what she wanted to do and have a job and make her own way and be a prince and not just a princess. Do you guys like Cinderella? No. Yeah. The first thing I think about when I think about Cinderella, aside from the Disney movie, is um, there was a meme I saw recently that was great. It said, Cinderella never asked for a prince. All she asked for was a night off and a dress. <laughs> I like that. All right, that's uh, those are voices from the streets that were gathered by two of our wonderful interns, Olivia Piper and Adriana Smith. Uh, they were in Blue, Black, Blue Back Square in West Hartford. Uh, all right, so uh, we're talking about the Cinderella story, the Cinderella meme, I guess you could say, uh, with Maya Cantu, a dramaturg and author of American Cinderella on the Broadway musical stage, imagining the working girl from Irene to Gypsy. Uh, she'll be joining the drama faculty of Bennington College in the fall. Linda Holmes is with us from the studios of NPR in Washington, D.C. She writes and edits NPR's entertainment and pop culture blog, Monkey See, and is the host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Also joining us by phone. We thought we should actually talk to somebody who's been uh, been Cinderella. So uh, joining us by phone is Heather Curran, uh, Cinderella in a production of Into the Woods on Fire, Islands, uh, Fire Island in the Pines. So before we talk to Heather, let's maybe just pause over this for a second. And, and Maya, I'm going to go to you for uh, a second. We kind of alluded to the the kind of the problem of Cinderella, right? I mean, it just really doesn't make sense if you tell it the Perot way and try to um, marry that perfectly with modern sensibilities. But one of the things that Sondheim and James Lapine do in Into the Woods is they, they have a Cinderella who's kind of, who's maybe even asking some of the questions a modern woman would ask. Like, do I want all this stuff to happen to me? Yeah, she uh, very much is. She... Um asks, what do I want? How can I uh, uh, know what I want if it hasn't happened yet? And she's an ambivalent Cinderella. And um, uh, Sondheim, you know, actually writes in his uh, book, Look, I Made a Hat. He's uh, drawn to the grim version over the Perot uh, Cinderella for several reasons. Uh, The grim is certainly grimmer and darker and thus uh, a little more well-fitted to contemporary sensibilities. We have, you know, uh, the stepsisters cutting off their heels to fit the shoe. And, you know, uh, that's certainly something you don't find in Perot. But she's uh, an ambivalent Cinderella in Grimm. Um, she actually leaves the ball of her own accord. There's no magical uh, curfew given to her by the, the fairy godmother. Um, she, uh, she just decides to leave the ball. Um, so Sondheim talks about uh, that being sort of, you know, a puzzle for the dramatist, for him and James Lapine to figure out uh, why does she leave? Why when you could have a, you know, uh, a golden dress and a prince and, and leave uh, the cinders behind, which you want to go back home, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, she does. She runs home, uh, you know, twice ultimately before, um, uh, you know, uh, getting her uh, uh, slipper stuck in the pitch and, 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 and into the woods, uh, you know, leaving it there so she doesn't have to make the decision. But, uh, yes, yeah, she is a, a complex, a psychologically uh, complicated uh, and ambivalent uh, Cinderella who at the same time makes her own uh, choices. She wills herself to the ball. Um, and and there, it's a more matriarchal uh version of the tale too there's this thing with her uh her dead yeah, mother who's... actually i'm going to pause you there because i just want to so just people who've never heard into the woods i want them to hear a little bit of sure. cinderella's ambivalence this is the song on the steps of the palace it's your first big decision the choice isn't easy to make to arrive on a bold is exciting and all 
There's a lot that's at stake, but you've stalled long enough Cause you're still standing stuck in the stuff on the steps Better run along home and avoid the collision Even though they don't care, you'll be better off there Where there's nothing to choose, so there's nothing to lose So you pry up your shoes Then from out of the blue And without any guide You know what your decision is, which is not to decide You'll just leave him a clue. Okay, I can listen. I love that song so much. Anyway, so um, and so Linda Holmes, the other thing that this musical does, before we get to uh, somebody who's been Cinderella in this musical, it, is it does something that's sort of the, the postmodern fairy tale treatment. We get it from a lot of different places, certainly the works of Gregory Maguire that get turned into things like Wicked, um, it, which is the, what's going on outside the frame here. I mean, these stories always do end happily ever after. Uh, so in Into the Woods, we find out, well, what does happen after you get together with the prince? And it turns out, you know, it's kind of a modern story. Just things don't work out that well uh, and, and end in, in the equivalent of divorce. So that's kind of the other thing that, that we're seeing now is a quest- questioning the, the basic premise of Happily Ever After. Right. And there's an interesting parallel between um, musicals like this that consider what the actual consequences of meeting someone via magic and um, things like that would be. And, for example, superhero movies that reckon with um, the damage that is done during these massive battles in which the Earth is saved, Mm -hmm. um, they have just started to make superhero movies that reckon with those consequences. And it's interesting to me that that mythology, after all this time, you have both, um, you know, stories and, and films and musicals that are beginning to consider what the fallout is from the mythology around Cinderella stories and also what the fallout is from some of the the um, mythology around superheroes and and massive battles of the kind that we've been seeing in blockbusters for many, many summers now. So let's talk to Heather Curran, who has actually played this role. And Heather, you know, I mean, we'll, we have talked and we will talk on this show about ways in which stories like Cinderella can trick little girls into believing in kind of a princess version of themselves, a standard that they can't equal. But another thing that this story does is comfort people, comfort people with the sense that, boy, the problems that you're dealing with with right now. They don't have to last. They, they can change. And my sense uh, about you is that, that you have loved from the time of your childhood this story for that very reason. Uh, yeah, I, I actually was in foster care uh, when I was younger. Mm. And I kind of uh, clung to Disney movies a little bit um, as I got older and kind of loved that sort of escape. Yeah, I mean, you actually sort of, I mean, not to make it into some kind of cliche, but, I mean, you kind of lived the role a little bit. I mean, weren't you mopping the floor and, and singing some of these songs? Uh, yeah, actually, in, uh, in my foster home of 10 children, I was the one who did the dishes every night and mopped the floor, and I'd be singing at the sink. And uh, my foster mother, who was actually a very kind woman, she would kind of joke with me and say, oh, Cinderella. And, uh, and, and I sort of liked it i guess because i because my image of cinderella at that time was the disney movie which is my favorite disney movie and that her voice is so beautiful and um and i and i liked it uh and then i think as i got older i kind of was one of these uh girls who came from not a lot of money and and i really did have this sort of vision uh like like i would find a man who would love me and would help me to kind of raise my social status. I feel like I was one of those girls. Um, And now as I've 
grown older, I'm no longer that girl. But I, I think, um, I think that's the path of Sondheim Cinderella. Is um, she's just trying to find belonging and she's trying to find identity. It's it's such a beautifully written character, you know. Yeah, so that's uh, you wind up, and and maybe this all fits, right? Because uh, even as you were being comforted and inspired uh, by the 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 more pink and pretty uh, version, or blue and pretty version uh, of of Cinderella, you know, as you live your life, you realize, well, there isn't really going to be a pumpkin that turns into a coach or any of this other stuff. I'm going to have to make it through somehow. I'm going to have to figure out uh, how, how to get through life, and and so you get cast in, in into the woods as more that Cinderella. I assume that appealed to you also in the sense that there is an element of realism that you see there that you might not see in a more classical version of it. Yeah, actually, I'd been listening to that score since I was in college. And it and that, that score, for many reasons, got me through a lot of tough times. Um, and the, the song that Cinderella sings at the end of the show, like near the end, No One Is Alone, uh, I've been listening to for 20 years. And um and I, I really, uh, the way that Sondheim looks at characters um, is so interesting because, you know, I've heard of people who went to stand to the woods, and when the first act ended, uh, they got up and started to leave the theater, not realizing that happy ending, uh, the whole second act is about what happens after the happy ending, what happens after that. And um, I think that's something that any girl who loves Cinderella has to kind of come to terms with. Like if you get the marriage and the husband and all of these things um, that are based off of some man loving you, uh, then what? Like, who are you? Uh, and I, and I continue to kind of struggle with that myself and kind of find my way in the world and my own identity that has little to do with um, how I look and how a man feels about me. Um, well, you know, uh, in some ways, um, Linda Holmes, we're coming full circle in the in the story of Cinderella, that in a way you could sort of say that what happened with, with Charles Perrault and what happened with Disney was they kind of sucked the darkness out of a story that had been around since ancient China uh, that and that has, you know, 340 identifiable different versions of it. And Linda, some of those versions are pretty dark. It's not like Lepine and Sondheim thought this up for the first time. Oh gosh, no. This is this is not even the darkest by far. There are a lot of versions of the story that involve, you know, people be not just people being killed, but people being killed, people being eaten, um people being uh buried. Um there's one where, you know, just as as one example, there's one where Cinderella and her sisters are or the main character and her sisters are uh are uh, spinning with their mother and there's a thing about they decide that the first one to drop her um her little uh thing of thread will be eaten and it's the mother so they eat her it's very there are some very dark versions of this story that have existed um over the course of the time that it's that it's been around so yeah this this is not even if you want to see some dark versions of Cinderella and similar stories. This is not even the Into the Woods slash Grim one is not even uh, the darkest by a long shot. Um, we're going to take, take a little break here, but we would be remiss uh, if we didn't uh, go out of this segment uh, with our guest Heather Curran singing No One is Alone from Into the Woods, produced in the Pines on Fire Island. Who can 
say what's true. Nothing's quite so clear now. Two things, fight things. Feel you've lost your way. You decide, but, but you, you are, are not alone. Believe me, no one is alone. No one is alone. Believe me. Truly, you move just a Stay with us. When we come back, Colin will be talking about Cinderella. No, not the Jerry Lewis movie. Calm down. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Tyone Wolf, with acting by Betsy and intern Esther Sheetu. Our other intern is Leah Myers. The part of Bill Curry was played by Walter Pigeon. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Here and Now staff pulling a giant pumpkin, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose ponders the congressional sit-in and a very popular TV series where all the virile men are stupid. And now, back to Colin. I bet Linda Holmes has already figured out which popular TV series has really stupid but virile men, but uh, that's not what, we're, not what we're talking about today. We're talking with Linda Holmes uh, from a Monkey See and NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour uh, about Cinderella. We're also talking in studio here to Maya Cantu. Her book is American Cinderella's on the Broadway musical stage, imagining the working girl from Irene to Gypsy. So um, we also wondered kind of, well, is there kind of, is there any way that this, uh, this script ever gets flipped uh, on a gender basis? Uh, and there actually are some instances of that, and we can maybe get into that with both Linda and Maya. But first of all, we have to acknowledge that there is a, a an idea uh, floating around. It may not be uh, something for which you are, you know, eligible for medication. It's probably not in the DSM-5 yet. Uh, but there's this notion that there is a type of person walking around these days, a type of actual male person who might be described as a cinder fella. Uh, joining us right now is Simone Paget, uh, who writes a blog about sex, love, and relationships called Skinny Dip. So, Simone, uh, tell us what a cinder fella is. Uh, well, a cinder fella would be... Um it was based on an article that I read recently in the Huffington Post, um, but it's a, typically like a middle-aged man um, who is basically looking for kind of love to rescue him and change his life. And so uh, a lot of these, uh, this is uh, the phrase I think was coined uh, by uh, psychologist Michelle Martin. And so the notion is that, that this is a man who's kind of bought into the mythologies of rom-coms a little bit. Uh, he may be uh, recently divorced and, and just sort of rushing out to have this incredible transformative experience. And, and Simone, I'm assuming that means that he's a, a bad bet uh, as a date. Well, yes, because um, like as the sources I spoke to explained to me, and this is something I believe as well, like they're looking for um, kind of an unrealistic view of love. They're looking for like a like you said, a transformative experience that will change their life. They're looking for their fireworks, you know, twenty four seven, and it's it's kind of, it's not realistic. And quite often with these situations, because these people want this kind of experience of this unrealistic experience of love so badly, um, they're willing to really rush into relationships, and that's kind of a real red flag. Like, you can experience this kind of great, life-changing love, but it doesn't necessarily happen, like, instantaneously. Um, and when you end up in sort of Cinderella territory, you're not... Um, it, it sort of neglects... They neglect to allow, like, relationships to grow organically, instead choosing for this have this instant gratification experience. So, yeah, we talked in the previous segment about how fairy tales cause sometimes don't have a plan for after happily ever after. Yes. Uh, these guys don't really have a plan for after kissing in the rain, right? Uh, no, what comes exactly. after that. 
So um, I, I just want to explore this with our two um, uh, kind of experts in the literature. Uh, Maya, there are ways in which you can sort of find instances where there's there's something approaching anyway the male Cinderella, right? Somebody, who, some man who kind of gets saved by a woman in a similar way. Absolutely. There are uh, male Cinderella uh, musicals, for one, going back to a 1928 British show called Mr. Cinders, where that flips the script. <laughs> and uh, I believe he's um, a servant at a uh, at a uh, British manor, and she is the uh, you know spunky American heiress who comes and saves him. So if they don't show... revive that for John Oliver to do, <laughs> they're they're missing a huge opportunity. Anyway, continue. I believe it was actually revived at good speed in the eighties. Okay. Um, I was a little young for that, um, but uh, so that does actually go back. Uh, something uh, even like. Um, Ragged Dick, which is a novel by Horatio Alger, which uh, sort of is one of the definitive rags to riches story, uh, has um, the title character saying he went to see Cinderella at Barnum's. And that reminded him of himself after he makes his transformation. There are definitely, uh, you know, uh, Cinderfellas going back. Another variant of this that I look at in my book is called um, The Sleeping Prince Fable, uh, which gets its name from a uh, a play by Terence Radigan from the 50s. It was later filmed uh, with Marilyn Monroe as the prince and the showgirl. And in this variant of the Cinderella myth, uh, a, a sleeping prince uh, is rescued by the Cinderella as much as he rescues her from her lower status or, you know, from whoever she is that she needs pulling up from. Um, and it's, uh, you know, we find variants of the sleeping prince in, you know, things as recent as Pretty Woman. Uh, at the end of it, you know, um, uh, she says, you rescued me and, and Richard Gere's uh, uh, businessman uh, Edward, who she has sort of, uh, you know, helped put back together, says, you rescued me. So there's this sort of um, idea of, you know, a a man um, in these uh, fables, usually kind of um, upper crust or sort of cut off from the world, being brought back to life by his Cinderella. So I look at this as a sleeping prince fable. um, And uh, they still continue to be very present in in movies and in musicals. And there was, of course, the Jerry Lewis movie, but we promised we wouldn't talk about that. The actual Cinderella. So so Linda Holmes, the the fact that there is a term like this, though, Cinderfella, then it's clearly not uh, a term of approval. It really does kind of suggest to me that there is something fundamentally gendered about this story, that we can dig up uh, Mr. Cinders uh, and, and whatever else we want to. But this, it really is a story that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'd love to be disagreed with, but it feels like it's a story that, that for the most part, society won't accept moving in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is, I mean, I, I don't know that it's inherently gendered, but it's certainly culturally gendered. And I think you can see that if you look at the way, um, for example, if you usually see a story about a wealthy, powerful woman um, who meets a, you know, kind of like a regular working guy and they fall in love, um, and this happens a lot in like your a certain number of your like Lifetime and Hallmark movies, mm-hmm. for example, um, typically the narrative there is still that she has become cold and too driven and spends all her time working and needs the the more earthy, um, you know, regular guyness of him. It's never that he needs to escape his life of menial labor and go live with her in her condo. That's never <laughs> what it's about. So you typically still see the rescue going in the same direction, even if the economic um, statuses of the two people are are reversed. Right. I mean, that's even sort of there a little bit in Bridges of Madison County, right? That there's like, here's this guy, you know, who kind of puts you back in touch with, sure. uh, the, with the animal inside you. <laughs> Well, this is the whole, like, this is the whole cowboy thing. This is the whole guys who work on cars thing. It's a, it's typically, I'm not saying in life, but like 
in romance, in romantic narratives, most of which are still aimed at women. So, you know, uh, yes. So, uh, uh, Simone, I mean, is there like a a particular danger signal that you could uh, look for if you're, I don't know, on a Tinder date or something like that? (laughs) How do you know you're dating a Cinder fella? Um, Well, I mean, I think just seeing um, people who rush into intimacy, um, for example, the guy um, found, although like the cinder fell has kind of been defined as someone in their 40s, um, I'm in my mid-30s, and when I was a few years younger, I was dating quite a lot, and I found that there was also a lot of men um, in their sort of late 20s, early 30s, who were just kind of looking for like the instant girlfriend. Um, So sort of rushing like the connection... um, in the sense that, like, you were, you might be on, like, your second or third date and they're already talking about, like, a serious commitment and um, sort of this um, unwillingness to let things evolve in, like, a, a, a organic pace um, and also just having, like, unrealistic expectations. So I, I've had experiences where I've um, dated men who expect it to be, like, fireworks, 24 7 um so expecting like the intensity level of the relationship to be like the royal ball mm-hmm. every single date um which isn't very real- realistic because you know life isn't like that and um yeah no it, it seems it seems, it seems of, like their fairy godmother is probably their sassy gay friend who's actually trying to talk them out of that vision uh and get them to be a little bit more practical about the whole thing i'm sorry to interrupt but we really are literally out of time this has been so much fun and thank you so much to maya Cantu. Uh, her book is american cinderella on the broadway musical stage imagining the working girl from irene to gypsy we've barely scratched the surface of what's in there uh, and certainly linda holmes uh, always a pleasure uh, to have linda holmes who writes npr's entertainment and pop culture blog monkey see the host of npr Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thanks also to Heather Curran and Simone Paget. Hey, Greg, I'm having a Cinderella-themed party for my kids next Friday. Do you want to come bring your girls? Oh, that's so sweet. Uh, Where is it, and what should we bring? Snacks? Soda? It's at our house, and, you know, just bring the usual Cinderella stuff. Windex, a mop, some rags. Uh, Yeah, it's Cinderella-themed, and I could definitely use some help cleaning up this pigsty. Thanks, Greg.